Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Things Could Possibly Get Much Worse edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. I'm feeling very optimistic about life in general, despite that pessimistic title. But it's true, things could get much worse. Not yeah. for me, things are going quite well. I, I'm feeling Not okay right now, Shane, but you know, it could be worse. It could be worse. Things in an hour could get much worse. I won't be with all of you. Aww. Aww. That was Tamara Kaufman Wittes, my good friend. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And I'm here with Benjamin Wittes as well. Hello, Ben. Yo. And our special guest again this week, Susan Hennessy, Managing Editor of Lawfare. Susan, thank you for coming across the office to join us. Thank you for having me. In our podcasting studio perched atop Washington, D.C. With, <laughs> At with the pinnacle of power. Yeah. With, with low-flying helicopter sure. occasionally <laughs> buzzing us. I'm pretty sure no other podcasting studio in Washington has this much um, foliage growing in there. There's a lot of foliage. <laughs> a in, veritable like, rainforest. Intentional foliage. It's not like mold or anything. It's like, you know. There's some of that, too. There's <laughs> probably a little bit of that. Yeah, I'm sure there's some of that. Um, so we had news last night, guys. You were all home, I'm sure. Riveted, watching the New oh, Hampshire didn't debate. Oh, did somebody vote? Or oh, the, no, primary. It was a primary. Oh Sorry. yeah, yeah. They're okay. blending together for me. Mm. Yeah, so there was a vote. We have more real information about uh, how voters, at least in the Granite State, is the Granite State right? It mm-hmm. is the yeah. Granite State. Yeah. I get that confused with Vermont. That's the White Mountain State. Yes. Anyway, at least how some voters uh, feel about the Republican Democratic candidates. Big nights for Trump and for Bernie Sanders. Probably not unexpected. Um, does this tell us anything about the state of rational security, it, foreign policy, where we're where we are heading? It tells us that the uh, polling in New Hampshire was more accurate than the polling in Iowa. It sure does, by the way, doesn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was like not surprised at all by these results. I actually think it tells us something pretty fundamental, which is that millennials really don't care about security issues as a... Because they're voting for Bernie Sanders? Well, so so Bernie Sanders, uh, whenever he's asked a foreign policy question, he answers with the same two moves, which is, number one, I voted against the Iraq war and that shows judgment, and number two, the problem is domestic and it's about the big banks and income inequality. And he really deeply doesn't want to talk about foreign policy. And this is now 13 years, 14 years, 15 years after 9-11. And this is the first major uh, candidate in either party that we've had who, uh, in a very profound way, is running a purely domestic campaign uh, and, and getting mileage out of it. And I think that's a that's an interesting milestone that, you know, Hillary says, hey, I've been there at three o'clock in the morning. I'm, you know, the one with the experience to, you know, manage, among other things, security and people don't care. And I think that's that's a big change. But I don't know how much of that is um, sort of a, a rational policy uh, values choice and how much of it is 
you know, a group of voters that probably get most of their foreign policy information from Twitter, and a little bit, uh, a little bit have the perception of, oh, you know, I read three or four articles on Syria. I've read three or four articles. Therefore, I understand. That sounds like the Trump campaign. Right, but the sort of notion <laughs> that like you can dabble in this stuff, or or yeah, you can. I actually think it's deeper than that. I think that for this millennial generation, particularly but not exclusively on the left. Their defining foreign policy experiences are the failures of Iraq and Afghanistan, and they are therefore skeptical of foreign entanglements, skeptical of American military power, skeptical of the ability of the United States to do big things abroad. I think that that sentiment helped carry President Obama to his election in 2008. <laughs> And I think it's only grown that that component of the Democratic Party since then. And it exists also in the Republican Party, although it doesn't seem to have a standard bearer uh, amongst the primary candidates now. I like your distinction, too, about this maybe being something that's maybe predominantly on the left. I mean, where Bernie Sanders just cleaned up with voters, I mean, really, I think under 40. Yeah. I mean, based on the exit polls, and Hillary was much more polling over 65. I would love to know, though, for take Trump, who cleaned up in every demographic category last night, which was impressive and I think should be alarming for every other Republican candidate. Um, I would love to know the millennials who voted for Trump, where do they stand on this from the guy who says we should carpet bomb the shit out of ISIS and, you know, talks about people getting their heads cut off. I mean, he has made sort of the weakness of Obama's foreign policy one of the big foils that he works off of. But I would wonder if maybe the millennials who support Trump, that's not their main issue. I mean, I don't know. He's seen, and also, I mean, I would like to know who are the millennials supporting Trump because when you're talking about making the country great again, for them, that's like 1992. <laughs> but, but Trump, uh, there hasn't been a single sort of identified individual who is a national security mm -hmm. advisor for Trump. Period. Well, there's one Except guy. Tammy. <laughs> there is one guy who's trotted himself out there, but I mean, I have these kind of. A, Ted Cruz yeah. has hired a woman with zero national security experience. She was a book editor, an art historian. Wow, really? Never held a clearance. Never worked for the federal government. Uh, you know, she's Not somebody who was, was one really of Donald matters. Rumsfeld's uh, book editors who he who he hired, and that's well, Ted Cruz. Sure, she learned a lot from reading his book. <laughs> And no who doubt. Does, who does Trump have, Shane? Trump has this guy, and I'm blanking on his name, but he's a retired Air Force colonel. Oh, right. Who actually, you know, the Bloomberg View had a piece on this. And uh, the comment that was that somebody said, and maybe this was actually the author of the piece, but he was like, he's, his policy is Reagan-esque in that it is unencumbered by ideology. Like, <laughs> anybody who thinks that Reagan's foreign policy was unencumbered by <laughs> ideology that doesn't know Ronald Reagan. But the idea, though, was seemed to be that the, with his what, in the interview with this foreign policy pseudo advisor, whatever for Trump was saying, was, you know, essentially, well, he'll he'll just make big decisions when he has to. He's good at it. He'll be smart about foreign policy. We'll which, win. We'll, we'll win. We'll be winning which, which, so and the, much. And in this weird way, he was sort of like articulating sort of a pragmatism that, I mean, I'm going to catch flack for saying this, but was not so different from what it seems to be the situational pragmatism sort of defines Barack Obama, right? Yeah. It's like, don't make stupid choices, we'll be strong, come from a point of strength. But I think it's you not can go a little farther, not on national security specifically, but on foreign policy more broad broadly. My colleague Tom Wright wrote a nice piece uh, on how to read Trump's foreign policy approach. And really the word that sums it up is mercantilist. Mm. It's it is self-interested, um, power-based. You know, it's really not about 
long-term. It's about short-term gains and comparative advantage. But I think one of the interesting things about Trump, and this is true across the board, not just in foreign policy and security matters, is that he actually never speaks in policy terms at all. He only speaks in terms of outcomes and results. So he tells you what we're going to get, hmm. but he never tells you what the policies we're going to get right. them. We're going to get a wall. We're going to get we're going to get great trade deals. We're going to get we're going to get a military that's big and tough. But he ne he never describes the substance of a policy. We're going to uh, build our F-16s out of solid gold. <laughs> <laughs> they won't they won't fly. And I and I actually have to say that I kind of love this about Trump that he's you know utterly it's solution free solutions right it's he's simply <laughs> describing outcomes you know I'm going to give you all the good things here they are you know yeah. gold ponies ponies <laughs> you know big hugs <laughs> um, death to your enemies and, and all those things I do I'm not considering voting for Trump I had no idea thanks that this was Ben the platform. thanks a lot. He seems to me like, he's like the, the grown-up version of like the kid who runs for high school class president being like, longer recess and like more soda vending machines, machines, more vending machines. I bet that worked for him in high school. I bet it did too. And at Wharton Business School and all the other Ivy League places he was educated. Donald Trump <laughs> does not strike me as someone who did particularly well in high school based yeah. on sort of his adult beat persona. Up. He got beat up. He's hurt. Who hurt you, Donald? <laughs> All right, uh, more to come on the campaign trail. Thank God, because it's like the only interesting story happening, right? Just kidding. Uh, this week on the podcast, could things get worse in Syria? Oh, yes, they definitely could. Um, the U.S. brings charges against an ISIS member in the death of an American hostage. Republicans are divided over who supports waterboarding more. Plus object lessons. Tomorrow, why don't you kick us off? Um, Syria is like a catastrophe on the verge of a disaster. Wrapped in, in a... Wrapped in a, a giant, just... Sucking sound. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, first of all, let me say that Liz Sly and her her colleagues at the Washington Post have just been doing a tremendous job... Absolutely. ...reporting uh, on the Syrian war. Some and, of the best, really. And, yeah. and today is... They've been is huge. A, they've been tremendous. Solid gold. Um... Today is yet another example, a piece byline um, by Karen DeYoung and Liz Sly um, and with help from uh, Zachariah Zachariah. The headline, never a great headline if you are sitting in the White House, is Syria, already a catastrophe, seems on the verge of an uncontrollable disaster. And just in case you thought that this was... Um, you know, not in any way uh, a look inside the failure of administration policy. The quote from John Kerry in the opening of the story is, quote, we are not blind to what is happening. We are all very, very aware of how critical this moment is. Now, what leads the Post, I think, to run a story with a headline like that today is that today is the last, the very last chance um, to pull together what John Kerry has been trying to build for a very long time, which is a diplomatic process to resolve the Syrian conflict. Uh, it was supposed to, the formal talks were supposed to open a couple of weeks ago, and at the last moment, the opposition, Syrian opposition representatives refused to come to the table because Russia had embarked on a major bombing campaign of Aleppo, and the Syrian government was still refusing to allow humanitarian access to civilians trapped in the fighting. Um, 
So today in Munich, uh, Kerry is trying again, probably for the last time, to get these multi-party talks to work. Of course, in the interim, nothing has changed on the ground. In fact, if anything, the Russian-Syrian government offensive has um, made further headway. And, uh, and there's a lot of talk that the city of Aleppo, which has been partly controlled by rebels almost from the early days of the war, may fall to uh, regime-aligned forces uh, very soon under the, f the force of this Russian bombardment. Now, interestingly, Russia has been using the diplomatic process as cover <laughs> for its continuing military campaign on behalf of uh, Bashar al-Assad's government. And if these talks collapse, they're going to lose that cover. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very interesting tidbit in today's story that the Russian government apparently sent a letter to the Obama administration this week in which they proposed to stop the bombing on March 1st. In other words, we're not going to stop it yet. We're going to stop it three weeks from now when we'll be pretty sure that we'll have accomplished our, our military objectives. And then you can have talks because the balance of power will be favorable to our side. Um, this, I think, has been the Russian game from the beginning. Uh, to use their military intervention to shape the environment for a diplomatic settlement. And, of course, that's precisely the approach that many, many people have been urging on the Obama administration for a long time. Um, it seems as though the, the Obama administration remains resolute in not, uh, not intermingling, if you will, its very limited support to the Syrian opposition, which is supposed to be directed against ISIS, and, uh, and the diplomatic process, um, and instead to treat these things as separate tracks. But if a diplomatic process isolated from the rest of American policy collapses, uh, then it will force a rethink. And this is a rethink for an administration that, as we were just discussing, has been um, quite bent on avoiding military entanglements in the Middle East, and that is trying hard to run down the clock on this miserable conflict before it leaves office 11 months from now. So I guess my question for you guys is, um, is it truly a collapse of the administration's Syria policy if these talks don't happen, uh, don't start to get a political settlement in Syria? And if it is a collapse, what, given the state of things on the ground, what can and should the United States actually do? So I think, I don't know whether or not the, the lack of the talks right now is is the collapse of the administration's policy. I think the question, if there's not talk sort of, you know, in the near future, it becomes, it, it seems less and less likely. It does seem like there are some sort of still open questions, even if the administration has said they've been answered, they haven't. So one is what the future of uh, Assad is in Syria, right? So the administration says he will not be a part of the future of Syria. Um, and Russia is creating the conditions on the ground by which that becomes more and more difficult. Um, it, it's hard to go into talks without actually having sort of resolved some of those preliminary questions. Um, and in terms of if this is a failure, what do we do? Um, look, at this point, uh, blocking humanitarian aid, the stories coming out of these siege cities are just absolutely appalling, unbelievable. Um, and so th I think that there does become an obligation to become uh, a lot more aggressive um, in terms of interpreting the law and 
uh, effectuating your interpretations of the law. You know, there, there are provisions of international law that say basically you can go charging in if people are being starved to death, which is precisely what is happening. Um, you know, this is, it's not just a question of, of the future of U.S. interests, it's the future of the U.S. soul, right? This horrible, horrible thing is happening. Um, and the answer cannot be to continue to do as little as possible forever. That just, that cannot be acceptable. Can I ask a, a really cynical question? Because I've suspected for a long time that there's a public administration policy and then there's a private administration policy, and that the actual private administration policy is to let Assad win. And the theory behind it is um, an end of the conflict is a much better outcome uh, for the mass of Syrian people than a continuation of the conflict, because under at least the end of the conflict, you're dealing with only one brutal dictator, whereas the continuation, you're dealing with multiple very brutal parties. Um, and so we have this policy of uh, de facto letting Russia help Assad win and focusing all of our attention on ISIS, um, while continuing a rhetorical policy of, A, there needs to be negotiations that nobody in fact believes is going to happen, and number two, that Assad uh, has no place in the future of Syria, whereas, in fact, we're tolerating a lot of activity on the ground, all presaged on the idea that Assad, in fact, does have a future role in, in Syria. And so my question is, is it really the administration's policy that's collapsing, or is it merely the administration's public rhetoric that is Collapse. Wow, is that succeeding. is cynical. <laughs> that's, I, yeah, that's way more cynical than I am. I don't think I it's am. cynical. You I don't think, think it's cynical? No, I think that's. I think he's right. I mean, I think that. God, you guys are terrifying. I think that the administration has. I mean, they've been saying this for months now. That you know, to Vladimir Putin, welcome to the quagmire. You're just going to tear your tear tie yourself down in this. The number of intelligence officials who have you know, not quite cackled talking to them, but have said like. This is exactly the mistake that the Soviets made in Afghanistan. You're welcome to it. Like, we talk about finding a political settlement to this, but then we clearly are going to live with Assad. I mean, this... It, it, you know, okay, I, I so think that's it, one it, way to it, read it. It's running down the clock, as you put it, which we've said on the podcast a number of times. Okay, but, so there is the question of how does the administration truly define its objectives? Do they define them in terms of running out the clock, which is cynical to a certain degree, or do they define them with complete duplicity, as you were implying, Ben, which I find a little harder to credit just because it would be so exceptional in American foreign policy. Not entirely unprecedented, but fairly exceptional. I, I do think, though, that if Ben were correct, if the administration's intent all along was to say, well, civil wars are messy and it's better to just let the stronger side win as quickly as possible, that'll be better for everybody, then I don't see how you square that with two things. Number one is an ongoing program of arming and training opposition forces uh, who are determinedly opposed to Bashar al-Assad. And number two, this constant um, coordination and, and not just rhetorical support, but practical support for Arab actors, Arab governments in the region who are supporting the rebels. So if the U.S., we're more concerned about terrorism than about Assad's survival. 
it could have taken a much harder line on Gulf state financing of rebel groups with any kind of sort of uh, Salafist or extremist link and just tried to shut that all down. Instead, um, they've not just acquiesced in it. They, in certain ways, they've worked to channel and organize and direct it and, and uh, focused their counterterrorism only on ISIS, whereas the Russians have defined the enemy, the terrorist enemy, as anyone who's against Assad, and they're therefore being much more effective in helping Assad survive. Well, so, I, I, I mean, I, I guess the cynic in me would say uh, we're letting the Russians do that. And, and whether, whether that's the deliberate outcome, uh, the intended outcome, or merely an outcome that we tolerate in practice, um, I, I don't believe that John Kerry is stupid enough to be flying around the world believing he is actually going to convene a peace process in Geneva that is going to negotiate a grand bargain between Assad and the non-Al-Qaeda ISIS rebels such that they will all join forces, agree on a roadmap to the future governance of Syria, and then turn on ISIS like a the golden horde and wipe it from the face of the earth. And I and and now, so in, in their like, defense, they never use the word golden. Horde. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. But you know, there, there's another dimension here, which is that if the United States were truly willing to just acquiesce in the Russian approach, which is to push Assad back to the fore and help him control as much of Syria as possible, it would be flying in the face of the the clear preferences, indeed in some cases the existentially defined interests of major American partners in the region, both Israel and major Arab states. And so it would be delusional because those states are, they're not just opposed to Assad. They see the survival of Assad as a major threat to their own security. And they are willing to invest a lot to prevent that outcome. So it would just be opening the door to them escalating. But that's precisely why the stated policy hasn't changed. So we help the Saudis and company train rebel groups that are in fact going nowhere, and we do it at a level that's ineffective. We let the Israelis do their occasional operation against trans transmission of arms to Hezbollah, um, and we let the Russians bomb the crap out of everybody um, or, or maybe we should say carpet bomb the shit out of everybody um, to help Assad win. And we all know exactly where this is going. And I wonder if we shouldn't just like acknowledge that it is at least the informal policy of the United States not to prevent uh, Assad from, from winning. But isn't it more possible that we just, un we just uh, sort of underestimated the amount of support that Russia and Iran were willing to give, right? So we figured, well, you know, the Syrian rebels, they, they were going to fight. We, the United States was going to be able to sort of give this training support, maybe some weapons, um, and, and that that was going to be enough. Um, these, these five years later, it turns out that when Russia and Iran answered the call, uh, they really answered the call. And so now we're having to shift, um, to shift the policy in a, in a political landscape that is probably not prepared to do what it takes to counter 
not Assad, but Assad plus Russia plus Iran. Wow. Well, I, maybe I prefer um, your uh, idiocy thesis to Ben's Machiavelli thesis, but um, I hope somehow you're both wrong and there's actually a master plan we just don't see yet. Boy, that'd be like an October surprise. <laughs> Can we wait till October? <clears throat> no, Syria can't. Uh, okay, so I'll move on to my wordplay, uh, <clears throat> which is a criminal complaint. A complaint, damn it, uh, that was brought by the Justice Department this week uh, against one Um Sayef, which is the nom de guerre of the wife of Abu Sayef, the former ISIS oil finance minister he's been described as, um, uh, alleging that she was part of a conspiracy that resulted in the death of Kayla Mueller, who, of course, was the 26-year-old American aid worker who went missing, was kidnapped by ISIS uh, in 2013 in Syria, and later died in their custody. Um, the complaint uh, is notable for a couple of reasons. It does establish, as a matter of record, uh, a few elements in terms of when she was kidnapped, the fact that she was held uh, by Abu Sayyaf and Um Sayyaf, uh, <clears throat> that she was forced into sexual slavery and abused by uh, al-Baghdadi, the ISIS uh, chief. Um, all things that have been reported before, but it sort of gets it out there as a set of allegations. What is strange about this complaint, however, is that this was supposed to not be necessary. Uh, so nine months ago, uh, when Um Sayyaf was captured uh, during a raid by U.S. Special Forces in Syria and her husband was killed, uh, she was interrogated by the United States first by the high-value interrogation team, which is, of course, the one that sort of operates outside the normal Miranda interrogation process. The HIG. The HIG. The HIG interviewed her. Then the FBI interviewed her, we know now, because there's an affidavit as part of this complaint. Um, and then she was handed over to the Kurds uh, and sent to Erbil, where, uh, you know, as I reported at the time at the Daily Beast, we were told uh, justice will be swift, this won't take long at all, and she will be prosecuted. We talked about it on the podcast. Talked about it on the podcast. Justice would be swift right. and sure. Swift and sure, and they would throw the book at her. Uh, probably not on charges related to the death of Kayla Mueller, but on uh, the abuse and imprisonment of two young Yazidi women who were also held with Kayla Mueller uh, and who are named, well, that are identified anonymously in this complaint. Fast forward nine months, there have been no charges filed against Doom Sayyaf, and the Justice Department suddenly comes out with this criminal complaint, whereas before we had said we're going to let the Kurds handle it. Oh, and by the way, we have to let the Kurds and the Iraqis handle it because we have no extradition treaty with Iraq. Um Sayyaf is an Iraqi citizen, so even if we did want to prosecute her, we could not actually extradite her to the United States to do so. So why the hell are we filing a criminal complaint at this time? And it's very suspicious, and it was described to us by one official as an insurance policy in case she escapes, in case she is set free, or in case she is potentially swapped in some kind of a prisoner exchange and transferred to another country. All and is which, she still in the custody of the Kurdish regional government? Yes, in Erbil, as far okay. as we know. Uh, which, of course, begs the question, I mean, has something happened to change that status? And this is why we're coming out with the complaint. But basically, this was, you know, it's, it sure seems like the, you know, the Justice Department has come to a much different conclusion about the ultimate you know, disposition of Um Sayyaf than nine months ago, and that what was supposed to be a done deal, and we'll just walk it right through, is anything but, and that we don't have total confidence that she will, in fact, face justice. So a, a couple things. Um, first of all, there's uh, 
two really good articles uh, worth reading on this. One is in, in the Daily Beast. The second article, uh, also log rolling, is on Lawfare by Bobby Chesney, which looks at this case in connection with the uh, famous Doc Duke case that this was supposed to be a reaction to. Uh, and Doc Duke, you'll recall, is a Hezbollah uh, insurgent guy who ended up in Iraq and we couldn't get after our... Uh, he was responsible for a bunch of U.S. deaths and we weren't able to get custody of him after uh, we left Iraq. And so this case was supposed to be the answer where we'd kind of figured it out how to how to handle it interjurisdictionally. And it looks like that really kind of hasn't worked out and it's not really clear why. And it's not clear to me anyway from reading these excellent articles that all rational security listeners should check out uh, why it is that the Kurds are not as eager to um, uh, proceed against her as we assumed they would be. So this is, uh, I, I can think of a couple of hypotheses, um, but the one that I think is most likely is about the relationship between the Kurds and the rest of Iraq. And, you know, as you all know, the Kurds have a sort of semi-autonomous regional government, but there are ongoing debates about independence from the rest of Iraq, about uh, and a lot of demands, not only from the Kurds, but from uh, Sunni populations in Iraq for greater autonomy, greater federalism, greater devolution of power from the Shia-led central government in Baghdad to the regions. Um, and so it may be that there was some kind of tug of war, legal or jurisdictional, over this Iraqi citizen and her prosecution in Kurdish courts as opposed to Iraqi courts. That's one possibility. Um, that perhaps now casts some doubt on the ability of the Iraqi justice system or Kurdish justice system to manage the case. But the other possibility is that, you know, this prosecution would inevitably become a lightning rod for Sunnis in Iraq at a moment when uh, the United States, the Iraqi government, the entire anti-ISIS coalition is working hard to get Iraqi Sunnis on side in the anti-ISIS struggle. And what they don't want to do is create a sort of, um, you know, not a martyr, but a heroine uh, for for ISIS and ISIS sympathizers inside Iraq. So I wonder if that has something to do with that. I, I, liked, I lean on number towards number two and then a third, which is <clears throat> um, looking forward to the battle in Mosul and knowing the role that Kurdish forces are going to be playing and are playing in the fight against ISIS. Um, it sure would be nice to have a really high-profile ISIS prisoner in your pocket to swap for your capture. Oh, good point. That's a very good point. I mean, keeper is an insurance policy, so of, of their own. There's a lot of insurance policies going around, but I'd be, I'm with you too on the, you know, now is not the time uh, necessarily to to rile up the prosecute Sunnis. and possibly yeah. execute. Yeah, a uh, ISIS fighter. Ben, Republicans are riled up. Republicans who loves waterboarding more. Who loves waterboarding more? So, um, you know, this issue came up four years ago in the Republican primary. There was a kind of waterboard you, no waterboard you debate, you know. And um, Mitt Romney was kind of forced into the I love waterboarding camp. Um, but uh, I'd this, say he was waterboarding more. This, no. this year. Um, <laughs> It's really like everything about the Republican campaign. It's really gone to a whole new level. The um, volume is at 11. And it just stays mm -hmm. there. 
Uh, so let's start by listening to Ted Cruz on the subject of waterboarding from uh, last weekend's debate. Senator Cruz, is waterboarding torture? Well, under the definition of torture, no, it's not. Under, under the law, torture is excruciating pain that is equivalent to losing, losing organs and systems. So under the definition of torture, it is not. It is enhanced interrogation. It is vigorous interrogation, but it does not meet the generally recognized definition of torture. When it comes to keeping this country safe, the commander-in-chief has inherent constitutional authority to keep this country safe. And so if it were necessary to, say, prevent a city from facing an imminent terrorist attack, you can rest assured that as commander-in-chief, I would use whatever enhanced interrogation methods we could to keep this country safe. So uh, there's Ted Cruz uh, doing the full John Yoo. Uh, this isn't torture. And by the way, even if it is, I have inherent authority uh, to do it, uh, to keep the country safe. And I know exactly what every rational, the word that's jumping to every rational security listener's mind in response to John Yu's uh, position, which is pussy. Because that, that's, the, you know, virtually the next day. Really, that was exactly what jumped to my mind, mm -hmm. Ben. Right, because that's what happened when John Yu issued that memo. You know, all the people in the Bush administration took it and they read it and they said... And they giggled. <laughs> and they giggled and they said, what a pussy. And that's what, at least literally, I'm not making this up, that is what uh, Donald Trump called Ted Cruz the next day. Um, uh, uh, he pretended he wasn't doing it himself. He got somebody to call it out from the audience and then uh, mockingly chastised him or her for using that word and said, it's horrible that you would use that word. So then you ask, well, okay, if, if Ted Cruz is taking the pussy position and it's the John Yoo view, what is Donald Trump's view of That's an uh, excellent what? question. That is ben. a good question. Well, I would be interested to hear. Let's go back to the debate uh, and, and hear uh, the Donald Trump non-pussy position. In the Middle East, we have people chopping the heads off Christians. We have people chopping the heads off many other people. We have things that we have never seen before as a group we have never seen before. I would bring back waterboarding, and I'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. So there you have it. And what is worse than waterboarding? Bring a hell of a lot worse yeah. than waterboarding. So he's refused to say, but here's what I love about Trump's position. First of all, it is uh, predicated on the other sides using decapitation. So, um, you know... Fair is fair. Fair is fair. They right. cut people's heads off, so we get to do a hell of a lot mm -hmm. worse than waterboarding. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say what it is. Um, I'm not sure if he has particular techniques in mind, um, but I think we should, we should all spend some time thinking about what's a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding that he's... You know, is he talking about pulling people's fingernails out? Well, like, and how, do, how does he know that it's worse than waterboarding? Is he going to test these personally? Now, to be fair, his son uh, did say, and again... Oh, right, his son has direct experience right, with worse his, than waterboarding. His, his son said uh, the other day that uh, waterboarding was basically is like what goes on in frat houses, 
Uh, which raised the question of what fraternity he was in. Oh, That's some serious hazing, man. So here's the serious question in all of this non-serious stuff. Um, what is going on in the Republican cult of toughness that it is, um, you know, the number one and number two Republican candidates, although I suppose we have to include Kasich now, um, are out you know, I'm John Yu. No, you're not tough enough, John Yu. Um, you got to go to a hell of a lot worse than waterboarding. Between them, they have about 50%, 60% of the Republican vote. What's going on here? So I have a response that I think, I don't think that this is uh, an entirely sort of new phenomenon, right? It's, it's the chicken hawk. And whenever you look at, I think, sort of the, the most eloquent response to all of this is John McCain's rejoinder. Yes. Um, where he describes his own experiences as a victim of torture. John McCain, of course, um, demonstrated really uh, uh, tremendous heroism, um, both being subject to uh, being uh, a victim of torture and also in um, electing to remain with his troops. Susan, he got caught. He got caught like, like the <laughs> dummy that he is. Um, and so I thought, I thought John McCain's sort of response was really uh, a sort of a funny way to call all of them pussies without needing to use the word by reminding them that, of course, none of them have served in the armed forces. Uh, none of them have been subject to, uh, to this stuff, although notably Ted Cruz's father actually has been the victim of torture, um, which makes it sort of difficult to square his position both on the stage and a personal level and also his endorsement of the Feinstein-McCain anti-torture bill, which he's just recently endorsed. Um, but I, I think it's the same uh, sort of pro-war tough guy um, you know, march towards this uh, militancy that that you see among all kinds of people who have never been in wars and have never uh, vested any kind of personal uh, stake or courage in the matter. So I think that's really insightful. That and it's partly it's generational, right? That this is these candidates are emerging in the era of all volunteer forces. So you know, we have many, many fewer people in American political life who. Um, have served in the military uh, than in generations past. And so there is this chicken hawk dynamic. I also think there might be another component. And, I, you know, there have been some dramatic swings in American public opinion broadly on uh, counterterrorism strategy, on willingness to put ground forces in to defeat ISIS since the Paris and San Bernardino attacks. And so I think that we can't dismiss the role of fear and a desire for vengeance um, that makes this kind of stuff popular. <clears throat> Both of their campaigns, and the Trump phenomenon especially, I think, is coming from a place of anger and fear, and he has to channel that and reflect that back at people. <clears throat> and it's also a way of saying, you know, we're going to go back and do things the way they were before that Barack Obama came in and put, you know, tied our hands and made us weak and took away all these tools, never mind the fact that it was the Bush administration that took waterboarding off the table. But it's just this very convenient kind of foil, I think. And it feels great to be able to say, like, you're goddamn right we're going to put them in waterboard them. Sure we are. And it's momentary and it's fleeting, and nobody asks any follow-up question. And, you know, it was also more than 11 years ago that that tool was taken off the table, and it seems like a very recent kind of thing for us. But I wonder to what, to what degree 
the loss of this or the perceived loss of these tools has been festering among some voters thinking like if only we would bring these things back. I mean it's a really interesting point. I mean waterboarding has not been used since 2003. Uh, yeah, um, that's 2003, that's right. It, it's, yeah. it, it involved three detainees. It was, yeah. you know, it doesn't implicate the larger high-value detainee question. Uh, and the idea that, you know, lo these many years later, we are still debating, you know, not whether, not merely whether it was defensible to use it in the context of that time, but whether we should sort of bring it back. Um, is a it's a remarkable look into our uh, sort of psyche um, and our desire for for uh, toughness and I agree fear is yeah, a big and it's, is a it's big a part of it. It's a very hard problem and it's still with us and and every time there is an attack, people get afraid all over again and so we go back to that place where they are willing to contemplate these kinds of actions. Right, and the way that I think that it really sort of demonstrates it is the lack of specificity, right? That he that he returns back to that thing your parents did when they were too mad to come up with a punishment. Right. I don't know what it is. Just be. wait. Yeah. <laughs> right. You, know? you uh, don't want to see what I'll do. <laughs> but, again, but again, it's promising an outcome without promising a policy. Yeah, well, you know? and we all know how well that worked for our parents <laughs> when they said, mm -hmm. you don't want to know what I will do if you break curfew tonight. Mm -hmm worked really well. All right, uh, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first. I have a new favorite TV show. Wow. It's going to really appeal You're to You're our pop culture maven. I am. Can I guess what it is? Sure. Is it know. Occupied? Occupied? What was that? I watched the pilot of this Norwegian television <laughs> show called Occupied in which Norway gets invaded by Russia. Oh really? And it is about yeah, it is the ultimate rational security. Did they come security. in through Finland? Uh, well, they, they haven't actually come in yet. They've merely asserted that they're coming in. And it is ele an electrifyingly interesting mm. show nice. on Netflix in Norwegian. Okay. Uh, For all you Norwegian aficionados <laughs> I hope out it's there. Subtitled. Um, well, you maybe can talk about that next week. <laughs> All right, I will. In your own object. So, Shane, <laughs> what's your object lesson? Although, I am going to check that out. Uh, no, this is a great new show that has already aired on BBC, and now it's on BBC America, called London Spy, uh, which stars Ben Wyshaw, who people might know as Q in the new James awesome. Bond series. Awesome, I love that guy. He's terrific, and he's been in some other great movies like Cloud Atlas, which I liked. A lot of people didn't like it. Uh, <clears throat> but terrific. Uh, basically, it is the story of, and it is somewhat drawn from a real event in London about four or five years ago, this very strange story, but it's about Ben Wyshaw plays this sort of very um, looking for love in all the wrong places, tweaked out club kid who one day through a chance encounter uh, crosses paths with this um, tall, dark and handsome, mysterious man who says he works for a financial analysis firm or something. Um, they fall deeply in love, and it turns out that that guy is not at all who he said he was, and it turned out it's not giving it, he's a spy, it's not giving anything away. But then it's basically the story of how this story unravels and Ben Wyshaw's character tries to find out who the hell was this person uh, who I fell in love with and now is, you know, not, not on the scene. Um, it is just, it's, it's a great story, it's a great thriller and it's, he's so cute. He's totally cute. It's great. I like it for two big reasons. One is it feels like a very just plausible story about the world of espionage and secrets. And it plays in that it's beautifully shot in London. And it is all kind of gray 
and kind of you know dark and sinister. It feels like a very modern Lacare kind of story, um, and it actually is seriously one of the best portrayals of gay relationships and sort of gay anxieties and all these things that I've seen. It doesn't give in to stereotypes. It's I I I. Been, I'm not, I haven't fallen in love with a spy, but like every person on gay person that you is like, know of. I know, I know <laughs> of. That he is tall, dark, and handsome. Right, but like it's just very true to like a lot of things that happen in their lives, and it and it doesn't give away. It's not it's not maudlin. It's not. It's just it just gets it all right. But bottom line, it's just a great riveting spy story. It's got awesome. Jim Broadbent, who is fantastic. Charlotte Rampling is in this. Um, it's who I'm not as familiar with, but he plays the spy. Uh, and it's based loosely, although I think the producers don't want to acknowledge this, off of that case of Gareth Williams, who was the GCHQ codebreaker who was found dead, locked inside a duffel bag oh, yeah. five years ago. And it turned out that there may have been some kind of weird relationship thing going on. Yeah. Anyway, it feels a little bit ripped from the headlines. But London Spy, great, excellent show. Check it out, BBC America. They're about three episodes in. Awesome. So you can catch up. Thanks. Great. Who'd like to go next? Uh, okay, I'll go next. My object is this homely, green, top spiral-bound steno pad that I've been using to take notes in uh, at my meetings. Many of you may have something similar, um, or even a stack of them, as I do in my file cabinet. I was in a cab the other day on the way to the State Department for a meeting, and I left my steno pad in the cab. I did not ask the taxi driver for a receipt. And now that all the cabs in D.C. are painted exactly the same way, thank you very much, Mayor Bowser, um, I couldn't remember which taxi company it was. So I thought my notebook was gone forever. And we live in a very cynical age. We've been very cynical during this episode of Rational Security. Um, and I think those of us who work on national security tend to end up pretty cynical. Uh, and so I wrote my notebook off. I assumed I would never see it again, and all my wonderful thoughts were lost. But... This taxi cab driver found the notebook, found inside the notebook an email I had printed out with my friend's email address in it, wrote her a note and said, I found this notebook in my cab. I think it might belong to a friend of yours. This is Drove so the notebook nice. to her office. And so it found its way back to me. So key question. Would Chris Segoyan and the ACLU approve <laughs> of this surveillance? You know, going. He looked into my notebook without my permission. Had this been an encrypted iPhone, <laughs> it would be gone forever. Forever. Right. Right. So, I'm, first, I want to give a shout out to get to the taxi driver because. You are a good man. You have a good soul. You are a good egg, sir. Yeah. And your trust in people and your social capital is what brought my notebook back to me. Thank you very much for renewing my faith in humanity. But here's the, uh, the point for, for us here in this room. We talk all the time about the benefits and costs of new technologies and what they mean. And um, if I had taken an Uber or a Lyft, it would have been so easy to contact the driver and get my notebook back. And I couldn't do that because it was an old-fashioned taxi cab. So I got to say, there's an upside to the Internet and these companies knowing everything about me. And the me. surveillance and associated the surveillance with it. associated with it. Yes, that's my conclusion. But get to thank you for my notebook. Even though she no longer recommends you taking a taxi services. Uh, no, if, if Getu is a taxi driver like most in D.C., he drives a cab and he drives for Uber and or Lyft. 
So my object lesson is a uh, puppy whom I have never met. Um, I was in Austin, Texas uh, uh, last week uh, at a conference at the University of Texas, and I was approached by this charming young University of Texas law student who explained to me that he was a, a loved lawfare and loves the Lawfare podcast and is a big fan of the Rational Security podcast. And then he paused and said, and so is my dog. Hi, and that wow. guy's dog. And so, so shout out to that dog. Shout out to our first canine listener. We don't have stats, um, but this is the first time that anyone has ever told me that their dog is into rational security. Aww. So I don't know the name of this student, um, but I have a feeling he's going to hear this. And I just want to say, tweet a picture of your dog. Oh, yeah, show uh, us the dog. Show, show us, us the, the puppy. And, show us the puppy listening to the podcast. Yeah, and we will tweet. Uh, we will put. Uh, my object lesson is going to be blank until we can put your tweet in there with a picture of Rational Security's official canine mascot. I love that. And he, yeah, I was going to say, he could become our canine mascot. Yeah. He could. Of course, Let's we don't see know. how the dog is <laughs> In what way does he love the podcast? Does he love to howl at the podcast? Mm -hmm. Does he love to sleep to the podcast? Mm -hmm. What is our effect on yeah, him, let actually? Us know. Let us know, Texas fan, yeah. what the dog is doing and, and um, you know, if there are topics that your dog would like us to address. And if the dog wants to be a special guest on the podcast. <laughs> oh, I'm all for that. Yeah. Totally. I'm all for it. Oh, that's we're a pro-dog podcast. That's something to look forward to. That's a happy note mm -hmm. to end on, It's you a dog-friendly podcast okay, well, we have here. To that. Things are looking up. This is See, a really heartwarming object lesson, We guys. thought things would be much worse after the end of this podcast. They're only getting better. We but started maybe with... the fact that they are good means they can get worse. Oh, we, we started with Syria and it. we ended with puppies. <laughs> and, and Susan wants to drag <laughs> us back into Syria. <laughs> May we all end with puppies. Indeed, indeed. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our past shows in our archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Please follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Tweet pictures of your own dogs, but just know there's only one that is in the running for unofficial mascot. We would, however, like to see your pets. And let us know if your cat like listens to I'm a cat guy. Maybe your cat will listen to National Security. Mine will not. <laughs> uh, whenever you download the podcast, please remember to leave us ratings and comments. We really appreciate it. It helps us out. The podcast is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Trump Cruz and the waterboarding Pussy Riot. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's nice good. One. Yeah. That sounds like a punk That's band. good. Yeah. Shane's back. With yeah. The band I'm there. I'm there. Okay. I had an off week. <laughs> <laughs> no. Actually, our music was performed by, of course, you guessed it, the lovely Sophia Yam. On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, thank you all for joining us. Uh, thanks for listening to you all. I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.